Greetings from the north, citizens of the globe, welcome. Good people, we indeed live in interesting times. To paraphrase that old Chinese adage, and those of you who has followed us for a while knows that the forum is a child of the last free online breath as the crackdown started in 16 where the process of rolling back the development, benefiting the public, became overt and plain for all to see. There's always a new, unilateral, fear-mongering narrative spewed by the former news organizations, which today are Intel-controlled propaganda channels, and woe to anyone who dares utter just the slightest deviation from this narrow narrative leading to exceptional overreaction, like a Hindu truck driver protesting the sabotage of his job, is accused of being a white supremacist, loses his bank account and his savings with no recourse, like publishing war crimes that another country has committed, leading to the criminals in that country trying to assassinate and abduct you to let you rot in their jail, like creating an open space for an honest intellectual exchange of fact-based and scientific information, leading to smear campaigns and the stigma of being a conspiracy theorist. I mean, the list goes on and on and on, and I know I'm preaching to the choir, as surely any sentient being knows all of this by now. So... We don't really need an excuse to have a show defending the 300-year ideal of liberty, but I did get one, seeing as there's a new book out, revealing that everything is upside down. So I immediately seized upon the opportunity to make the case for freedom, which is really absurd to a psychedelic level. I mean, having to do that. I mean, ask anyone who has habitated Earth for more than 30 years if they ever believed that would even become necessary. It's like arguing for why we need to breathe fresh air and drink clean water, but in an upside-down world, I guess the defaults given do become the contested battle zones. Now, listen to this. They are determining the risks that we're taking all over in all aspects of our life right now, increasingly. So that's something... And people believe it's based on science. <laughs> yeah. It seems to be really superstition. There are many of these cases where we're being micromanaged. Maybe that's because we're moving toward a state of enslavement rather than um, a state of freedom. And the real danger down the road is what if we have health passports that have all of our information stored digitally? And what if we move to a fully digital currency and our finances can be cut on or off? as we're being surveilled. So that's, you know, a, a very dystopic perspective, but we seem to be moving in that direction. Yeah, I mean, everybody criticizes the social credit system of China. Yeah. But now the same thing is being implemented here without people realizing it's the same thing. That's the thing with eroding liberties. It's never like everything overnight. It's always this slow drip, drip, drip. And sometimes it goes fast ahead and then it resettles on a new normal. Mm. And it's, that's the way it's gone since the 80s. Uh, it's more, been more visible since 2001, since the so-called war against terror, than national security state, which is international, it's global. 
19 ice or whatever they call it. The degree of coordination yeah. that seems to be occurring, that there is a similarity in the response and it, it moves in the direction of being draconian, typically. Yeah. Uh, we haven't seen anything like that on a global scale. We've seen it within nations to varying degrees, but this is a global coordinated event. That is an excuse to take away rights on a global scale, which has never been done before. And now we have the technology to enable a global surveillance enslavement system. That's a part of the problem too. People have no idea what science is. People behave as if science is religion. Yeah. It's like science says. No, it's inert in science that it disagrees about everything. It's anti-science to go by majority vote or consensus. But the problem here is that we, we don't have any, there's no checks and balances. Mm. It looks to me as if the majority of scientists are silenced. They are canceling doctors and other professionals left and right. They are censoring them, banning them, losing job, wage cuts, uh, reputation. There's a lot of control mechanisms that doesn't give voice to normal scientists. What is science? It's a process of trying to discover the truth and process being the key word, that it's evolving. Mm. How many times throughout history has the quote-unquote science been proven wrong? And what we're seeing today is uh, many experts coming out saying, the science says this, and therefore we have to do this, mm. as if that science is immutable and factual. Mm. It becomes religious, like you said, um, where, well, this study said X, Y, and Z, or sometimes they don't even reference a study. They just claim because they're an expert that we say this, and therefore you, you follow it. That leads to, as you're alluding to, uh, censorship, who has an idea that is contrary to what the scientific establishment is claiming, then you can be removed. We're seeing this all over social media. Your account can be suspended. Videos are being banned, um, where we are, our consciousness is essentially being funneled in a certain direction. This is one of the reasons many religious people are dissidents, because they believe that they are coming for our values doesn't matter which religion. All of them are against this thing too. And especially having fundamentalism replace the religion, putting more and more cartoonish, bringing the wackos to scare people from, see, this is the alternative. Yeah. And also it lends um, more credibility to the power of government as almost a godlike figure. Yeah. If we can take away this idea of a, a higher intelligence that we're part of, then if, we, if people have that belief that, that we are part of something greater, they're going to be less likely to uh, deify the political structure. Mm. And therefore, the political structure has an incentive to want to try to de-spiritualize the masses. Absolutely. Not just governments, all power institutions. Yes. yes. It doesn't matter. You know, a weak government compared to a multinational corporations who have more money and power than a government is the same problem. It's just another structure for the monster to, to manifest through. It's a changing of what reality is. And what you're describing, Al, is a, a form of amnesia. If an amnesia can be created, then the next, the future generations wouldn't know what happened in the past. If you can erase history or steer history in a different way. Don't worry. You don't need a rope with a noose listening to the show today, although this admittedly sounds dystopian. But that's just to break you down before rebuilding you with a sweet scent of hope and solutions. Because as today's guests argue, if everything is upside down, 
then there actually is a logical way out of the mess. So if you stay with us for both episodes, you will be exposed to interesting facts about consciousness, decentralization, and the antidote to the globally inundated corruption. Don't take my word for it. Rather take it from Mark Samuel Gober, who has committed a series of diagnostic and solution-based books called An End to Upside-Down Thinking in 18, which won the IPPY Award for Best Science Book of the Year, An End to Upside-Down Living from 2020, An End to Upside-Down Liberty from 21, which is what our show today revolves around, and finally the timely and aptly named An End to Upside-Down Contact from 22. Now, Gober's personal evolution has been quite a ride in itself. First, he was a golden boy. In high school, he served as class president and earned the highest GPA of his school. He then moved on to Princeton University, where he was named ITA Scholar Athlete all four years and elected captain of Princeton's Division I tennis team, won the Maryland Interscholastic Athletic Association A conference title and posted a record as number one singles player for the Eagles and ranked by the U.S. Tennis Association among the top 10 mid-Atlantic junior players and even named the 2003 All-Metropolitan Player of the Year by the Baltimore Sun. He was not only an outstanding athlete, he also graduated magna cum laude from Princeton with a major in psychology and wrote his award-winning thesis on Daniel Kahneman's Nobel Prize-winning Prospect Theory on Behavioral Economics. Then in 08, Mark Gober became a player at Wall Street as an investment banking analyst with UBS in New York. And in 2010, at Silicon Valley as a partner at Sherpa Technology Group. His opinions on business and technology matters was quoted, among others, by Bloomberg Businessweek. He authored internationally published business articles and was named one of IAM's Strategy 300, the world's leading intellectual property strategists. Perhaps it goes without saying that during this period he was suffering under a materialistic mindset, which eventually drove him into its innate and unavoidable emptiness and depression. But as always, when hitting a brick wall, you either have an enlightenment to move around it or you crack your skull. And Marx had had more to offer the world. His worldview was fortunately turned upside down in 16 when he was exposed to world-changing science. So after having fumbled his way out of this dark night of the soul, he started addressing the emperor's lack of clothes and moreover offered to weave new garments, to exhaust the metaphor, through his aforementioned books on the upside-down issues and through other writing, international lecturing, as well as through audio and video. Most noteworthy here is his 2019 podcast, Where Is My Mind?, which features 50 episodes of interviews with the world's leading scientists of metaphysical, paranormal and consciousness research. Small wonder, then, that he serves on the board of the School of Wholeness and Enlightenment, as well as Apollo 14 astronaut Edgar Mitchell's Institute of Noetic Sciences, where, by the way, you'll find a bunch of Mark's publications. As an avid spokesperson for the new science, which suggests that, contrary to mainstream assumptions and the propaganda narrative, 
Consciousness is not produced by the brain like urine is produced by the kidneys. Rather, mind is superior to matter. So, Mark has made it his mission to end all the upside-downness by exposing the general public to these cutting-edge ideas, all in an effort to encourage a global shift in scientific, organizational and existential thinking. Welcome to the free world of decentralized autonomous voluntarism. Welcome to Forum Borealis, Mark. Thanks for having me, Al. Oh, I'm happy to have you. Uh, finally, I can have a show about what we're going to discuss today. I mean, it's it's been featured in many shows, I- indirectly and sometimes even directly. But the brilliant thing with you, Mark, is that you wrote a whole book about this. Uh, now we can just uh, bask in this. Well, it's a pretty depressing subject, <laughs> <laughs> but it's so important. Uh, let me just rush to say before we open the floodgates here. I'm not very familiar with you. you you're kind of new on my radar. Okay. I discovered you, as I said, before we started via Alex uh, over at Skeptical. He had an excellent uh, piece with you. Pretty impressed by by your stuff um, and what you achieved. I even see you're a member of the Institute of Noetic Science. Is that right? Yes, I'm on the board. Wow. How did that happen? Who did you have to kill? <laughs> Well, we we promote uh, the very similar ideas about the nature of consciousness, so it's been a good match. Hmm. So, so I, I assume you have something of a name uh, for yourself in the science, spirituality kind of borderline area there. Because when I look at your podcast, which we're going to get back to that at the end, it looks like a mini skeptical. I mean, I recognize all the people from skeptical as being there, all academics, I should say. Were you aware of skeptical before you started your show? Uh, absolutely. Right. Yeah. Right, skeptical right. has had a big impact. And I wanted to interview some of the people that I thought were the top-notch scientists. And Alex mm. has interviewed many of them. Right. Yeah, you can't avoid, of course, recycling some of the same guests. Yes. But it looks super interesting. Yes, I reviewed your podcast, haven't listened to it. It looks very interesting. Uh, How long have you been doing that? Well, we just did one season, and it's an eight-episode season where there are clips from the people that I interviewed, and um, it's, it's a narrative where I'm talking to my producer. So I don't know if we'll do a second season. The first season was released in 2019. Mm. But it it was interview based uh, stuff, right? Yeah, well, I, yeah, I conducted around fifty interviews, and then we used clips of the interviews and and put it into a narrative with music and uh, oh. like a formally produced, yeah, like documentaries. So yeah, exactly, almost like an audio version. But my mm. producer, who is more in the media industry, is asking me questions because he's newer to the material. Mm. So we we use that to try to help the audience understand abstract concepts. Yeah, very well. You come to the right place for abstract concepts, by the way. I love it. <laughs> uh, if you if you wanna, I mean, we are a variety show, but if you wanna check our like, I mean, I I get two associations when I look at your stuff: science and spirituality, mm-hmm. which usually you, you don't often get both of those from the same <laughs> person, yeah. right? But yeah, I do for you. And if you ever wanna check out one of our shows, I recommend the interview with Anthony Peak because that's science and spirituality. At the same time, I'm sure you're aware of Anthony Peake. Yes, yes. yes, yes. Yeah, I don't know him super well. I listened to part of your interview with Alex as well. 
So you have a, oh, which yeah, one? I love the topics that you're talking about. I think it was part one of your interview that you did with him on your show. And then I heard your interview on Skeptico where you guys were uh, doing the year review. Right. You, you're not used to my shows, but you, you probably picked up very soon when you heard a show with Alex that I'm fond of talking myself, right? It's yeah. conversations. Yes. Yeah. Because we've done, uh, I've, I've done like, I have like four interviews with Alex yeah. and he's got three with me. Let's see. But uh, it's probably the the mainstream one called uh, Why Science, Scientism is Wrong. No, it was the one about why evil matters. Oh, evil. Yeah. Right. Part one. Oh, in part two, we go deep down the rabbit hole, man. Yeah, I need. To, I, I, I plan to listen to it. <laughs> yeah, that's a great topic. But um, no, the one with Anthony Peak is uh, Anthony himself said it was the best Ooh. interview he'd done. So it's pretty interesting. Yeah. But anyway, so I'm going to check out your stuff and um, yeah. But I have some questions uh, about your background. Uh, I see you played sport in a university. I assume that also means you studied at the university. Yes, I studied psychology. Mm. Okay, uh, are you out in California, by the way? I am. Uh, I am in between coasts. So right now I'm on the East Coast, but I, I am typically in California. Okay. Okay. Yeah. I hear California has been hit very hard with. Um, I mean, lack of liberties. I mean, oh it my used goodness! To, <laughs> my association with California is like happy-go-lucky. At least in the old days, all the way over the pond, that's what we were thinking about California. But now I understand it's more like a micromanaging zone. Even Rogan emigrated, I hear. Yeah, it has become quite tyrannical. It's a beautiful place, but it's uh, it's more on the, the uh, mind-controlled part of the spectrum. Yeah. Well, I guess we're going to talk about that. So let's see. So I have your book open here. So I'm going to have the index open it wasn't very detailed index yeah but there's a there's a glossary and an index oh there is oh let's see the index is at the very end the glossary is closer to the end of the actual book right 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 look at this anarcho-capitalism you're gonna have a show on political ideologies capitalism some people claim capitalism isn't a political philosophy they say it's just uh way to organize hmm. um, markets uh, uh, economy but if it's not a political if you won't define it as that uh, oh i see you even use crony capitalism but corporatism is what i just call all that stuff because as soon as you say capitalism you alienate freedom lovers on the right yeah and and, and to the left you kind of make them imagine that it's all about right wing ideas Right. But if you say corporatism, both people on the right and left get provoked by that. Yes. <laughs> it's that common enemy, right? It's very true. Yeah. Yeah. Cronyism, libertarianism, karma. Okay. Yep. So yep. And there's also, the, so if you scroll down even further, there's an index with many more terms, if that's of use to you. Right. <laughs> Starting on, let's see, PDF page 277. Right. So yeah. here you can look. Many up. more. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So here you get an impression of all the stuff. Excellent. So yeah, we're going to plug this book. It's pretty new, right? You have COVID and everything here. Yes. It came out this fall. So within the last few months. Right. But you've, uh, you've taken this, like, what's the English expression? Like you, you, you expect someone to go in one way and then they take a completely other direction. When I look at your CV, your achievements, I wouldn't expect such a book from you because 
many people in the science area they avoid uh, these questions because they are brand marked as politics although freedom really has to do with everything to do with our life but it's this political um mm-hmm. minefield and then people in spirituality it's kind of the same there oh it's dark energy i wouldn't want to think about that it's <laughs> it's negative it's depressing so when you because you had two other books let's start with that actually let's start with your two other books you talking you have this upside down concept Uh, can you explain what you mean with uh, for example you call it upside down thinking was that what you call it yes um, and living upside down living yes that's my... let's just quickly review what you you mean about that it's a, it's a cool term but let's understand it properly yeah the concept is related to the nature of consciousness and i think about consciousness as our our sense of experiencing so a, a very abstract concept but without consciousness we wouldn't even be able to have this conversation or think about the topics that we're thinking about and what i consider to be upside down thinking is the scientific materialist or some would call it a physicalist perspective that consciousness comes from the physical brain and more generally that consciousness emerges out of the physical world so the argument i make in short is to say that it's the reverse that consciousness is fundamental as max planck said the nobel prize winning physicist in 1931 he said i regard consciousness as fundamental i regard matter as derivative from consciousness and that's really the full stop full stop yeah we can go back we can even go further back i mean this is basically plato smacking aristotle's over the head with the mind over matter <laughs> it's an old yes. debate <laughs> ancient idea yeah. yes and um So that's the core of an end upside down thinking. That book goes through the scientific evidence for that. So psychic phenomena, telepathy, remote viewing, psychokinesis, and nice. also survival of bodily death. So near death experiences, mediumship, children with past life memory, past life memories. Oh, oh, hey, did you interview uh, Dr. Uh, Erlander Haraldson? Uh, I had him on my show. I didn't interview him, but I mentioned him in my book. Mm. Yeah. He cooperated with the guy who gets all the credit for that, uh, but he did lots of work. Uh, Ian Stevenson. Stevenson is, yeah, right, right. Yes, exactly. And they worked on a, a fascinating case um, in Iceland, I believe, on um, what appeared to be a, uh, an after-death communication. Mm. Uh, but anyway, that so that book goes through all of the, the various phenomena that some might call paranormal. And my argument was, well, if any of them are real, then the materialist- They're normal, right? They're normal. <laughs> yeah. Right. Paranormal, that's a very charged term. Right. So, but for me, as given my background, this was so earth shattering. I mean, I I come from a mainstream background. I went to Princeton undergrad. I studied psychology and with economics and uh, wrote my thesis on behavioral economics, mm. went into investment banking in New York, then worked in Silicon Valley, became wow. a partner at my firm. Like this is not, this is out there stuff considering my background. And so for me, when I- Yeah, because you've been in the belly of the beast, man. Directly in it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, and you live to tell the tale. That's nice. Oh yeah. I, I somehow survived it. Um, yeah. And I'm still, yeah, probably still recovering and still adjusting to this this new perspective because my thinking was upside down right right so so you that's uh, your trigger point was this has actually been your own journey in a way that you're helping other people understand now 
That's very well put Hmm. that it's been my journey and I've been sharing the resources that have helped me. Uh, So my first book was the compilation of the science. And the second book was a little bit of that, but also my personal journey and the spiritual awakening process. So an end to upside down living is how would we live if we understood this uh, post-materialist worldview? Right. So first, you want to end the upside down thinking, and then the next logical step, obviously, will be, okay, but how do we live now with this new, uh, with this end to upside down thinking? Then, yeah, then we have to start upside down living. Yes. (laughs) I mean, stop upside down living. Right. But then I guess you realize the logical sequence would be we're running into a brick wall here, namely the upside down liberty. Yeah. No wonder that's the third book. Because if you're not free to live your life, then uh, what does it matter that you know how to live? Yeah. So let's get into that now. Look, my view on this is that society is compartmentalized. Um, It's divide and conquer on all areas. Like, uh, for example, I'll give you a practical example. I had, and I can say this because Alex won't hear this uh, until after the fact, but We're going to have an anniversary show for Skeptical. Mm. I convinced Alex to do that. He thinks it's just going to be some trivial thing, me and him just chatting a little bit about the show. But I've I've gotten like, we have a lot of people phoning in or sending recorded greetings. We have like a 10-minute feature with Sheldrake, Mm. where he explains his contribution to the start of that podcast. Now, in that feature, he talks about, he complains about how the pseudo-skeptics, you know, the faith-based scientism worshippers, the fanatical fundamentalist materialists, those extremists, that bunch, how they hijacked his Wikipedia page, which led him to be aware of how they actually control all contested stuff in Wikipedia regarding spirituality and science. But he's not aware that the exact same is the case, for example, in political uh, area. If you belong to any freedom-loving or anti-authoritarian, anti-imperialist kind of thinking, you're going to be, you're going to have the same. You're going to have like, what's it called? Like people who have an agenda who, for example, in Wikipedia, they're going to try to hijack your biography. They're going to mess with all the facts, etc. fact checkers, all that stuff. Yeah. So it's on all areas of life. It's not just in, in academia. It's not just in politics. It's like if you can define something with a label, you're going to see sooner or later the dark hand of the control mechanism sneak in. So my view is that people are aware of this in their own field. Yeah. But they don't understand that this can be transferred to other fields. Like in my family, I have a professor in geology. He's aware of the corruption, the decay, the censorship within hard sciences, if you like. But he's, he's unaware that, for example, now with COVID, he, he, he doesn't understand that the same is the case in the medical field, for example. And I think that's part of the problem here is that everybody sees the tentacles of the octopus but they don't realize that the octopus has been spreading all its tentacles in all areas. Do you understand what I mean? Yeah, that's very well stated. It's almost like the corruption appears to be siloed. Yes. And then if you take a if you zoom all the way out and do the research, you see there's an interconnectivity in what might otherwise appear to be disparate areas. 
Exactly. So let's start with, if you, in your book, I think you go through areas. Uh, let me go back to your book and check. Uh, I just haven't had time to read it, folks. Full confession here, but I reviewed it. So, uh, yeah, you, you kind of uh, divide it into government kind of mind control and uh, then non-governmental mind controls. And then uh, do you even go into metaphysical <laughs> mind control, like archons? <laughs> yes, I do. I do bring that up um, as a nice. yeah, as a question, and some of the Gnostic texts which, which point to this idea that from the early uh, stages of human development, that there might have been a suppression of our true nature. Yeah, I mean, imagine if we are we are a sheep herded like that. Uh, let's get back to those interesting philosophical things at the end. Let's start with the practical, trivial, secular stuff. How would you describe our current situation? And, and mind you, folks, he's not just farting out opinions here. He's done research. You're an academic, so I'm assuming you are approaching this with... You can't afford a non-academic quality to your work, right? Yes. And also in my uh, business career, a lot of what I had to do with my clients um, was presenting to boards of directors. Right. Um, so I, I'm just very attuned to having the sources backed up because I, I've, I'm accustomed to being interrogated. And that's my background. <laughs> very good. Very good habit. Congratulations. Okay. So let's hear it. Uh, how would you describe, uh, for example, chapter one, how, how does government threaten liberty? Let's, let's review that. Yeah. Well, a quick step back is that I, I don't really come from a, a having a strong political stance until the COVID era. Hmm. Politics was not on my radar in the same way that metaphysics was not on my radar until around 2016 when I became exposed to post-materialist science. So I'm coming at this from a somewhat unbiased perspective. I'm sure I have biases that I, I'm not aware of, but it's not like I entered the picture saying I am a Democrat or a Republican. Mm. Um, I saw what was happening with COVID. And like you said, that uh, there's a transition from thinking about post-materialism and how to live, and then recognizing that liberty is a very uh, important prerequisite to that. So that was the perspective that I took. I saw liberties being eroded in real time and began to think about, well, what is the nature of government? and was researching basic political theory. And when you look at uh, people like Hobbes, for example, he talked about the need for a Leviathan state because human beings are naturally warlike and uh, they're not trustworthy. There would be complete chaos without government. So we have the structure in society that essentially keeps the masses in check. Mm -hmm. uh, but even that logic which I had never even thought about before, runs into problems. And we'll talk about some of the other problems. But that logic of, well, we don't trust human beings. So what we're going to do as a solution is we're going to take a subset of those untrustworthy human beings and put them in power <laughs> over the rest of them. But, but Al, don't worry about it because the untrustworthy people are the ones electing those in power. Hmm. It, it's already suboptimal. <laughs> to put it mildly. It, it's there's so many paradoxes. In a way, you should say, ah, oh, you should have a license to vote, right? So it would be qualified. <laughs> Already there's a problem. And you always have the question, who's licensing the licensor? Right. Who's who's watching the watches, etc. You you're so right. It's it's just a basic philosophical problem. If we are so untrusty and unwarlike, the last thing we should do is put someone in charge of us. 
It's just going to accelerate their weakness. This is actually a case for anarchy. I mean, the philosophical, the, the true meaning of the world, not not like blind chaos and wild west. But uh, okay, so so that's a good, uh, and it's good to know you you're not coming out with a kind of label tribal in, in politics background because that that's when uh, the curtains go down for people. Uh, it's much better. I think it's an advantage that you weren't interested because you could just approach it from a, you know, like the emperor has no clothes. Mm -hmm. The boy could see it because the boy wasn't influenced by those biases you're you're talking about. Uh, And that's kind of, uh, I'm assuming, how it would be when you recently kind of look into this and and, and what you discover. Because you wouldn't, so many people are trapped in the left-right obsolete, anachronistic paradigm of left-right. I'm not saying there's no issues that could be defined as left-right, but in this day and age, those issues are so insignificant. If you look at, if you're an alien landing on Earth and you get the responsibility of organizing society, you're gonna, you're gonna look at essential stuff first. And the left-right battles of the past, well, I always say we can afford having them when we get our life back, when we get our freedoms back, when we have a yeah. society we can influence, then we can discuss how to organize it. But it's been hijacked by corporatism, so more and more people are waking up to the top-bottom thing. And when they wake up at it at the left side, they, they go through a period of confusion because they have to start recalibrating the wires in their brains because their knee-jerk reaction is to, oh, I don't like those people because they are the enemy. Mm. So if they show up at the same, let's say, a demonstration, oh, how am I going to relate to that? And of course, the exact same happens at the right. But that's the real dichotomy as I see it, top-down autonomy, decentralization versus oppression, uh, the machine. Now, I'll give the ball back to you. Well, that's that's how I'm looking at it as well. That the the way we do government around the world is it has an inherently oppressive quality to it, and I mean, in some cases, the most extreme cases, you have Nazi Germany, North Korea, Soviet Union, uh, but then you have less extreme cases where there are only certain erosions to liberty. But uh, going back to the basic nature of government itself, as I was trying to deconstruct this and looking at the various philosophers, it was perplexing to me and still is that governments provide services like uh, road servicing, courts, police and military, important services for society. But in other areas of society where there is a service provider, there is a more explicit customer relationship where the customer hires the service provider. And there's often an explicit and mutually agreed upon contract that expresses what the service provider will be doing, what happens if it fails to fulfill its obligations, pricing, termination, all of these very important things that you want to have in a relationship. And yet with government, it provides services and we have only an implied consent. It's much less explicit. And that is an issue because then it, it gives government an ability to impose things that people didn't necessarily consent to fully. Hmm. But then people say, yeah, but the government, uh, well, they are the people, they represent the people, and uh, 
who are the government anyway? It's not like it's a, a smoke-filled backroom. And uh, yeah, well, basically the government is bureaucrats. Yeah. Well, what you're describing, Al, I think is the the bias that many of us have because of our education system and really a form of mind control and brainwashing mm -hmm. to believe that those in charge have our interests at heart, that they care more about the people than themselves. When upon investigation, it, 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 it seems that many politicians, certainly not all, and, and certainly not all bureaucrats, are driven by their own personal uh, needs, or sometimes they're being funded by someone. And or sometimes they're being blackmailed or threatened or bribed. Mm. That is not in the best interest of the people. So the reversal in thinking is to, to start with, well, maybe the government is more like a predator rather than a protector. Mm. Yeah, that uh, message should go home in America because not only have you had minimal government in many areas, in other words, you're being less exposed to positive aspects of government but the little government you've had is also super corrupt and uh, extremely i mean it's so backwards of course to a certain degree we have to distinguish between federal government and state government right mm -hmm. um yes yeah? you want to say something yes yeah? well there is an important distinction and that decentralizes the power somewhat in the u.s but there still is this uh, lack of a, a, a mutually agreed upon contract unlike we have with other service providers. Mm. I, I just mentioned that because it's interesting. You know, I'm in Scandinavia and let's talk about Norway, but I think it's the same as the case for the rest of Scandinavia. We were traditionally a social democratic, like a Bernie Sanders kind of country. Mm -hmm. Even our conservative party is, to put it like this, the, demo, the DNC in the traditional left-right axis is to the right of our conservative party. Okay. That's European politics for you. America is in their own bubble when it comes to the left-right <laughs> specter. But we also have much more governmental institutions and, and kind of control, if that's the right word. But what has happened here is that we've had like a labor movement who has been like a check, like a check and balance on the more corporatist thing. Of course, it's been hijacked by neoliberalism like everything else. But we had a very powerful welfare state. And that meant that those who built the country, they put in institutions that solely were for the benefit of the people. If it ended up being like that, that's another question. But that was the intention. Mm -hmm. And it, they had to fight it with the owners, the owner class, the oligarchs. And, and then in the modern era, what has happened is that they have streamlined governmental stuff so that it looks as if it's a service product. So let's say I'm talking with what you call IRS, right? Mm -hmm. Then I'll get like this phone. Oh, please evaluate your experience with customer service from one to five. You see what I mean? It's like that. Yeah. In the old days, it was sour people who knew they had the power over you. <laughs> <laughs> and you had to be standing with your hat in your hands. But in the modern day age, in our Scandinavian social democracy, it's like a customer service kind of attitude and the customer is always right now uh, i have uh, like half of my listeners are american and are probably in disbelief now oh what what's this going on is he trying to push socialism on us no i'm just telling you folks we live in a nuanced world there's nuances here and 
the interesting thing I can see from this experience, because it's just the brave new world. You are more like 1984. We are more like brave new world, if you understand that mm -hmm. distinction. Yeah. Now, the interesting thing when government comes with a smile on its face and a customer service evaluation sheet is that it's much easier to see when they overstep. Every time really big interests are at stake, that's when the machine comes down. If it's things that are within what they can afford us fighting for, we get the best deal. So that means if we have to pay a certain amount of tax, at least our money goes to real tax things that helps us, like taking care of children or dentist or whatever. Whereas in your country, it just goes to the pocket of the powerful. I'll give a short example. I think this is interesting and telling. Okay. When it comes to, let's say, smart meters, are they polluting our health? We have no say. It's just implemented, centralized, like if it was China. And uh, it, we have no recourse. We try to take it to court. But what happens is that they suddenly remove. They only have like the judges who represents power. Um, and I interviewed a whistleblower in his case. Same thing. They have like a secret kind of, what do you call it, like national security court where there's other rules mm. than the mainstream courts and they are NATO controlled and that's where bam fascism corporatism is, is being implemented and nobody is aware of it because here in, in rainbow land in social democratic Scandinavia the state is nice and kind it's an uncle statistics has shown opinion polls has shown that Norwegians are among the most authoritarian believing naive population in the world mm. how because we have so much positive experience with with the government and we are dependent it's been woven into our culture for 50 years so people are much more let's say corporations yeah you can get them to be suspicious of that but when it comes to if the state says that covid has natural origins and everything else is a conspiracy theory bam 50% automatically believe it. Do you understand uh, the world I'm describing from, from my end of the specter? Yeah, it's a, it's a view that government is benevolent. And mm. that's, the, that's the starting assumption, it sounds like. Yeah, and we're stuck on that. Yeah. Because government kind of works here. To a certain extent, it does. Right. In, in some it, areas. And, and some, I think that's more dangerous, actually, because then people are not aware of... Uh, it's so much easier to awaken in America today because you've been kicked by the boot. It's not pretending to help you. Yeah, this is the, the classic saying in spirituality, the wolf in sheep's clothing. Right. Is that something can appear to be benevolent, but it, it has actually more nefarious intentions behind it when it's pushed. Mm. Um, but what you were alluding to something that I've looked at very closely as well, which is the idea that as a as a service provider, um, the government lacks financial accountability, unlike other service providers. So let's say with any service that you you buy from today, um, if you go to to the grocery store and they they're serving uh, selling rotten apples and rotten food, you stop going there, and then they risk going out of business unless they improve their services. We don't have that kind of a financial corrective mechanism with government because it is paid no matter what through the process of taxation. And uh, it's not as if with taxation, we get to check off the box of all the things that we're, our money is going to go to. Actually, in Denmark, when you do your taxes, 
you can cross off areas where you it's mandatory you have to cross off a certain amount of areas where your money is going to go to it's a risky experiment because you could end up everybody crossing off good things and no money for let's say subsidized oil or no money for the weapon um, the military industrial complex etc but of course in reality there's always going to be sleepers and morons who always do the wrong things so they get away with it <laughs> right right the well, illusion of of choice right <laughs> yes the illusion of choice and, and certainly in the us our, the, the money just goes into a big pot effectively we're not we're not we're not checking off where the no. money goes so it, no. it varies by government um, but ultimately what i argue for in the book is is moving toward a, a much more um, a type of a society where the, the demand of the citizens is driving what is supplied to us rather than the government determining, determining what people get. Mm. And furthermore, what the government does, and we're seeing it very clearly today, the government is also determining what risk citizens can take in their own lives rather than letting them determine risk on their own terms. Right. Right. And, and another very important point in this uh, discussion is that even if you want to argue that we need a government, because I'm not going to assume everybody are libertarian in their understanding. Let's say you are a knee-jerk classical, like we need a government, they have to help us. Okay, folks, I'll grant you that as a political view, but that's a moot, that's an invalid point if we can't influence government. And there's a study was it Princeton? Was it your university? Some some famous university released a study showing that this is for America, but it's everybody knows that how the way America goes, the rest of the world is ten years after that. So uh, they show that there's no influence from the people. Uh, I don't know the time span. I think it's the last twenty years, thirty years. They show that more and more and more and more, all decisions of government are benefiting exactly what the oligarchs want. Mm -hmm. And I think it's like 2% the will of the people and 98% the will of the one percenters, the, the corporatists. And another study has just declared that America is effectively, by all intents and purposes, all definitions is an oligarchy per today which basically puts it at the same as Russia, whereas China has a different system. And often, I don't know if you did it, I, I know you were writing about China, but it's so easy to get people in the West, in Europe and America and Australia, to agree with all the anti-liberty things when you use China as an example. They immediately get it. Yeah. But when it's the exact same issues and they're happening here, I don't know if the mind control, what, what is it? It's like you, you speak about cognitive dissonance and being a psychology guy, could you just explain that to people? Because so many people don't understand what that actually is. Yeah, I'm glad you mentioned it because this is maybe the primary force that is inhibiting a, a greater perception of the truth. So cognitive dissonance is essentially the, the problem of encountering evidence that contradicts one's worldview. And there's like a defense mechanism that says, no, I can't accept that information. So if one has a worldview that a certain country is a free place and no, it couldn't be moving toward a totalitarian type state and no, that leader would never do that. Any evidence pointing toward this negative possibility could be rejected and the person might then um, miss the truth. Hmm. Yeah, we see that especially in the COVID uh, 
situation. Even that has been politicized. Okay, so let's say then that people uh, understand that a government can... It's like this. Classically, and again, I'm going back to the left-right dichotomy. Bear with me, folks. I'm super aware it's a top-down problem today. But let's go to the left-right thing because it's still relevant in terms of people's thinking. That's the problem. It's influencing the thinking. It's not much to do with reality anymore, but it's in the in the mental space reality. So there, on the right, is no problem getting people aware of the threat of, of liberty from government. But they don't see the same for corporations. On the left, it's it's kind of tendency to the opposite. They're aware of the corporations, yeah, but they're not aware of the government. Now, today, we have the same situation as we have had over 100 years ago. And that's that now governments are... I mean, it took two world wars to loosen the grip of the corporations to the government, but it's back. Just as under Mussolini, the difference is Mussolini, his state controlled the corporations. Uh, In uh, Nazi Germany, the same. Hitler controlled the corporations. They were in bed, but they controlled. In Soviet Union, you can say that state capitalism, they're the state was the factory and the inhabitants were the workers. So that was just one big corporation. Mm-hmm. So when government is hijacked by corporations, is there really any point in discussing a distinction between corporate oppression and government oppression? And you should also say a few things about corporate oppression because we see that very... ever. The first time I woke up to how international, how globalized it's become is in the Assange case. I remember back in uh, 12, when they were going after him, everybody, it was like an organized attempt at the same, like, like they did with Alex Jones when they removed him. Yeah, It was overnight. So this isn't like a coincidence. So same with uh, Assange. They were smacking down Wikileaks. Everyone, PayPal, Amazon, the banks, Visa, you name it. So obviously the leaders are in cahoots. Obviously on certain areas there is communication and agreement. So we need to flush out this thing about corporations, government, and we see it in social media now. We see it especially for corporations, right? And then they say, yeah, they have the right to, even though we know China, USA, and probably a whole host of other governments are just talks with Facebook or YouTube or whatever. It's been revealed case after case, even even in details down to remove that channel. Mm-hmm. <laughs> They're even going after single channels and videos. Let's talk a little about this. Yeah. Well, there there are many critiques of corporations, and you mentioned reason for that. But the to me, the biggest problem with a corporation is when it is colluding with governments, with a government structure that has an ability to control uh, laws among the people. So many of the problems that people talk about with corporations, I think, because uh, my, my book is arguing for the removal of the government structure and making it a fully voluntary system mm. where everything becomes a service provider and those who want it, they pay for it effectively. So uh, mm. some would call that anarcho-capitalism. Others call it voluntarism. I like the term voluntarism. What, what about the term anarcho-libertarianism? Could that fit? 
It, it could. Yeah. It depends on how one defines it. And the terminology gets yeah. dicey depending on people's biases. That's why I like the term voluntarism. It doesn't get into the, the term capitalism can be off-putting to some people. Absolutely. And so can anarchism. Yeah. Yeah, but it's just that when you say the term anarcho-capitalism, some folks associate it to that it's supporting multinational corporations getting monopolies. But you can't blame anarcho-libertarianism for that because they want decentralized. But but that's that's this is academic finesse. Never mind uh, that input. Just make them aware of what you're talking about. And I, I'm assuming you're covering that in the chapter. What is the alternative to traditional government? Yes, exactly. And ultimately, the the, the idea is that the the marketplace will determine how successful a corporation is on the merits of how well that that corporation or service provider is providing for those who demand the services. And in some cases, there might be successful businesses. In other cases, they might not be so successful. But the, in theory, over time, um, the, the supply-demand uh, mechanics will even that out in the, it will allocate things properly. Um, but as you were talking, Al, you reminded me of, of a quotation that has stuck with me by uh, PJ O'Rourke, who said that when buying and selling are controlled by legislation, the first things to be bought and sold are legislators. Hmm. And this gets to exactly what you were talking about, the danger of a corporations essentially colluding or controlling, colluding with or controlling government. That is the real danger. It's to me, it's not as it's not one or the other. It's when they combine. And and sometimes we get lost in well the corporations are the problem they oh it's just the government that's the problem mm. uh, it's this marriage that seems to be occurring everywhere and it makes sense if you're a corporation and you want your business to succeed and there's this avenue where you could uh, fund people that could help your business i.e. the government and politicians then it would make sense to do that so my argument is we have to just change the game the game right now allows for this sort of corruption but if the governmental power were to be decentralized or removed in the way I'm describing, corporations would have a much more difficult time colluding. Yeah. So you're basically arguing for a system change. Yes, a system change that is ultimately, first of all, I don't see this happening tomorrow. So I'm, I, I said <laughs> this is a long-term uh, idea. And the, the question that I ask in the book is how should society be organized, uh, basically? And the way we're doing it now, and we're seeing this in the COVID era, especially there are many problems with it. Uh, but the, the principle, which will align, uh, we'll probably get to it, to more metaphysical ideas, the post-materialist ideas, it's known as the non-aggression principle. And this is the, the fundamental aspect of, of the whole philosophy, which is you don't initiate aggression against anyone's body or their private property, things that they own. So aggression could be physical violence, coercion, fraud, theft, extortion, you don't initiate those things. And if someone initiates against you or your property, then you have a right to self-defense. Hmm. So if one believes that idea, which to me is very much aligned with spiritual principles, then the way we do government is not aligned with spirituality because it, by its nature, initiates aggression against people and their property without their explicit consent. And therefore, I say we have to think about a new system. Hmm. How uh, should we regard like property? Uh, this is goes back to fundamental political philosophies. Like, for example, shouldn't there be in such a paradise utopia system? Uh, shouldn't there be an avenue for the proletariat, those who own nothing, 
to attain property. Otherwise, wouldn't we get a two-tier system like we already have with a wealthy elite and the rest of us are just ants? It's a very good question. So I would say two things. Number one, the idea that what I'm describing is a, a utopia, that that is a common critique. And my counter to that is, yes, there are... Um, it sounds idealistic, but to me, it's even more idealistic to think that a government structure made out of a subset of people that we consider to be untrustworthy can properly manage society without becoming fully corrupt and tyrannical. So to me, that is a utopian, our current system. Mm. And this yeah, is- Plus, let me just quickly interject. When we already live in a dystopia, that's what it's yes. become. You know how the skeptics falsely say extraordinary evidence demands, uh, I mean, the extraordinary phenomena, uh, the extraordinary, well, apply that here. We're in a dystopia now, so we have to go even further for the cure to end somewhere in the middle, right? Yes. <laughs> Which would be an utopia. Go on. Right, right. So I would argue this is relatively less idealistic. Even if This is an imperfect idea. Uh, but to your point, Al, effectively about how do we make sure that there is a safety net uh, because you could have people that are very talented in business who end up buying up the property, which to me is philosophically not fully problematic because if you're engaging in a voluntary exchange, that means the seller is getting something out of that process, even if the buyer is getting more property. But to me, this system will work best and maybe could only work in the event of a post-materialistic worldview on within society. Mm. So what I talk about in the book is not just a political philosophy, but a metaphysical political philosophy. Mm. And the way you can envision it is because to me, when you're just thinking about whether it's, um, you know, libertarian, authoritarian, left, right, it's, uh, that is excluding the metaphysics mm. from it. And I think you need both. So on one, let's on one axis, let's say this is the the vertical axis. You have at the bottom state control and at the top is fully voluntary society, voluntarism. And on the x-axis, the horizontal axis, on one side you have fully spiritual, non-dual, you know, oneness. And on the other, on the left side, you have uh, scientific materialism. We live in a random, meaningless universe. Oh my God. I, I want us to move as fast as we can up to uh, to the left top of that. Right. We want, we want to move to the well, yeah, it's in, in the version that I have, it's the top right. But we want to move toward the, the most freedom politically and the most spiritual. And they have to go together, is what I argue. Oh, it was top right. Okay. Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right. So, so but, uh, yeah, so how does government threaten liberty? How does uh, non-government threaten liberty? You said when they're in bed together. But can we not conceive of non-governmental threats, uh, even if they're not in, in bed together? The short answer is absolutely. There's this is what I'm describing is an imperfect system, and if we move toward the highly spiritual, then people would be less. They'd be more charitable, first of all. So to to account for the lack of a safety net that the government provides financially, we would need more more charitability and less of a a, a, a violent, uh, selfish type uh, persona because that doesn't align with spiritual principles. But ignoring the spiritual aspect, I agree with you. There would be problems with it. And the argument that that many of the political economists make in this area who argue for volunteerism, even in the absence of spirituality, is that the, the marketplace will ultimately help alleviate those problems. So if there's an issue in society, then an entrepreneur could emerge 
to solve that problem. And so you'd have problems and then problem solvers mm. without this overarching governmental structure that is pulling the strings. Mm. That makes sense. But the question here, because you are open to the metaphysical aspect, then we have to entertain the following. Yes, material power has power, obviously. So whether that material power comes in the form of a monopolized multinational corporation or it comes in the form of a totalitarian government, okay, that's one thing. But if you go back to, you know, let's reminisce here. Ron Paul was very popular with his message in 2008. This was before they controlled the internet, and we're going to get to that too. Mm -hmm. But back in 8, I would say 8 to 12, there was a freedom wind blowing through the Western world, at least. And, well, not just the Western, we, we, we even had in the Middle East. But the thing is, he was arguing that philosophy was important because if you can turn the minds of sufficient people, and uh, including people with influence, then you can slowly... I, I mean, he's arguing for paradigm shift. And I'm going to give you an interesting example. Back in the 70s in Norway... We had, uh, like I've already indicated, we have a completely different political landscape than you. We have like 12 parties <laughs> being <laughs> voted for every time and etc. But back in the 70s, there was this little sect of Maoist communists. And uh, I mean, we had a lot of different factions, both on the left and the right. But this little, they were very strong at universities. Uh, the party was called Arkope Amal. Uh, the Marxist-Leninist Labour Party or something, but although they were Maoists. Now, they were a very small political sect, but they managed to dictate the narrative and the culture for so many years. In fact, many of them came into prominent positions and eventually, of course, all of them abandoned their revolutionary. Uh, they ended up being like mainstream politicians and mainstream culture people, mainstream business people, this, that. Well, we're all, with a kind of a leftish, uh, the last resort is always identity politics, right? So that's the safe haven mm -hmm. when you become corrupted, etc. Look here, don't look there, look here, identity politics, distraction. Yeah. But anyway, my point is, the way they managed this was that they were very organized. It was like, if you are just 10 people among a 100 you're a minority, obviously. But if you're an organized 10 people, you can start, let's attack that one. Oh, he's saying that uh, this and that. Oh, let's attack him. And he's alone, right? Okay, now we finished him off. Nobody believes him anymore. Let's go to the next one. Oh, let's attack him. Bam. <laughs> That's exactly the same manual that the pseudo-skeptics have used. That's why I'm using this example. They themselves are a minority, at least... In terms of, I mean, they have the majority with them in terms of influence and, you know, they sheepherded people into a illusionary bubble. So many buy into their stuff, but they're not like agenda driven. They're not like most people are truth seeking, uh, at least theoretically. So when you have this well organized sect, you can actually make it look as if you're the majority. And so if they attack, for example, uh, Rupert Sheldrake, he doesn't have like a band of soldiers. Yeah. Well, at least not before skeptical <laughs> <laughs> to defend. So, so that's how they can marginalize and people become afraid in science to speak up about anything else than the given paradigm, except outliers like, uh, Bru uh, is it, no, not Bruce, uh, 
you've interviewed him, um, Dr. Oh, I always forget his name. It's, it's a great, uh, professor who has been, uh, he's doing the, he's done the same work as Sheldrake. He's been reviewing science and the biases in science. Uh, just, Dean Radin? No, no, he's, he's done the parapsychological work, but someone who's been reviewing, is it Bruce? No, not Bruce. Bruce, um, Bruce Grayson is at the University of Virginia. No, that's a near, de- that's a near death, uh, isn't it? Uh, yeah, he does near death. Um, I'll, I'll get it later. Yeah, but yeah. anyway, you, you get my point here that the mindset actually matters because if people can do that for the bad things, there should be a way to kind of if we can spread a liberation idea, if that can become strong in culture again, maybe we can erode some of the problems because physical power can be battled with physical power. But let's face it, in today's world, nobody can really rise against physically against. I think the time of revolutions are almost gone, at least with the Western world. But we have this other way where we can influence the minds any thoughts about this? This is a critical idea. Um, and, and it's something that's come up in my research, whether it's in political thinking or in uh, post-materialist science, that the that people can be easily influenced by what they see in the media, by what the politicians tell them, uh, by what the experts say, particularly when people don't have the time or the energy sometimes to do their own independent research and they have their own independent critical thinking. And that might be the ultimate solution to all of this is for people to, to question and not just accept everything that they're being fed and to ask questions. Because once one starts going down that rabbit hole, I can say from personal experience, and you probably can as well, that the, uh, the lack of truth becomes very clear. So it's, it's a, the ultimate solution might be to emerge out of this hypnosis. It really is a form of hypnosis that that much of the population seems to be in within various areas. And I'm sure I'm still in a form of hypnosis that I haven't realized yet. I'm, I'm trying to unwind all of my biases as much as I can, mm. uh, but it's, a, it's educational. The more we can become educated as to what is true and what is a deception, the more we can shift our consciousness. And the power of consciousness is, of course, essential. Mm. By the way, the doctor I couldn't remember was Henry Bauer. Okay. Did you interview him? No. Oh, you didn't? I, I thought I saw it. He's um, done similar work to Sheldrake uh, when he revises science. Okay. But anyway, uh, back to uh, what we're talking about here. Yeah. So is uh, when you say dangerous psychology in your book, are you referring to this mental prison, this cognitive dissonance? That is certainly part of it, especially with regard to mind control. The, the dangerous psychology in, in chapter two of my book, In End Upside Down Liberty, is also referring to the danger of uh, of power, what that can do to leaders. So someone who becomes who gets put into a position of power, that, that can actually change them. And also people can become very obedient to authority. This is sort of along the lines of what you were describing, that we can just go along with what a political leader is saying or if a skeptic is saying. And uh, But even more than that, if, if the, this person who is believed to be in a position of power says you should do this, there are studies such as the studies done by Milgram many decades ago where people would press a button 
to shock someone if the experimenter said so, even though the person being shocked was a paid actor. Hmm. The person would scream and the experimenter would say, no, you still have to shock him. He answered the question incorrectly and this is his penalty and people will do it. And that's a dangerous thing if people will just obey without questioning. Yeah, famous experiment back in the day. Uh, But you have uh, tons of evidence. For example, um, there's this study who shows that people are being um, what's the details of that study i'll get back to it but dangerous psychology yeah now remember it's a study that shows that the richer you get i'm not talking about that you get your head over water or even become like middle class i'm talking about unnatural wealth Mm -hmm. the richer you get the less empathy you have Uh, there's a direct correlation there and uh, it's probably a million causations. And we also know the altruism. Power corrupts, absolute power corrupts, absolutely. You need, I mean, in, in principle, I'm for uh, what you call the, um, in, in English, I think it's enlightened despotism. Mm. If the people who were running the show were illuminated, enlightened beings. But there's no way to, you know, who's going to decide who's enlightened, right? That's the problem with it. That's why we can never implement it. It's a catch-22. Yes, yes. (laughs) But my point is, we get naturally people seeking power, all sorts of power, whether it's a prison ward or uh, a psychiatrician or whatever it is. Um, You get an, an unusual amount of people who want to exceed power seeks those spots and there's no mechanism to rule them out i mean to a certain extent i mean if you're a mass murderer you're not gonna get in a position of uh, you know important military or police uh, unless you <laughs> unless your mass murder has been done as a policeman or a military <laughs> so so but i'm saying there's there's no way to filter out psychopaths and when we know there's, let's say, 1%, as a psychologist, how many psychopaths do you believe are, are among us? Well, there are, first of all, there's a, a spectrum probably of psychopaths. Yeah, yeah. So some people who are more psychopathic than others. Um, and these are people who have essentially no empathy. Um, but in terms of the number, it's, it's, it seems difficult to estimate because sometimes they can be extremely well hidden. Yeah. And that's part of the appeal for a psychopath is that the ones that get caught, we hear about, and they might be a serial killer or a criminal, uh, but some of them are, are more chameleon-like and are able to hide and, and they're not identified. Yeah. I mean, I, I call them smart psychopaths. If you really want to inflict pain, don't shoot around so everybody knows it. You're going to end up in prison. That's the dumb psychopaths. Yeah. The smart ones would necessarily search for like city of london wall street and the banks this military system and politicians classical power yes and and that's and and they will be drawn to positions where power is paramount because that is what that personality type cares about um and in my book i, I reference a, a another book called without conscious by a criminal psychologist robert hare hmm. um and he he talks about this lack of conscience and self-gratification being what those people really care about. Um, And in fact, to to your point, Al, about 
estimation. He, he estimated conservatively in, in the late 1990s that there are roughly 2 million psychopaths in North America alone. Mm. So to, to me, that's a, a larger number than I would have thought. And of course, there's a spectrum. But this is such an important point because until I began this research, um, I, I didn't really consider that possibility that someone that I'm watching on TV who seems to be pretty nice and says things that you want to hear, that some of those people might actually be psychopathic. Where, where they do not care about other people, they're devoid of love, and they're able to hide it. So that possibility should always make us at least question. Yeah. And you said uh, yourself that uh, when they come into the system, it influences them. Now, uh, if you have a rigged system to be psychopathic, let's say you're a CEO of a multinational corporation, you cannot let your conscience involve if you do it, you're going to do a bad job and you're going to be ousted. So then the sum result logically would be that uh, real psychopaths, people who are default already so much on the specter that we can call them psychopaths, they will get there. Those who are maybe not fully there, they will grow to become like that. Or they will at least do those decisions because that's what the system rewards. Yes. there Right. There are multiple... Uh, mechanisms here. One is the system will reward that kind of behavior. And especially if there's blackmail and threats and bribery involved, that could convert someone who might be more naturally. <laughs> yeah. And then also, I mean, uh, a study that I reference in my book, the Stanford prison experiment done in 1971 um, showed this idea that you mentioned that power corrupts um, where some people were put in the positions of guards and others were mock prisoners. Mm. And one of the mock prisoners even said that the guards really seemed to enjoy uh, the agony of the mock prisoners. They had to stop the experiment early because the, the um, guards, the mock guards became so cruel to the mock prisoners. All right. And these are average people that they, yeah. they transformed. Just shows you the need for because the average man has not dealt with basic concepts like the resistance to the power temptation. Yes. Right? Someone who has been a leader in different ways will have to have encountered that. It's a part of your uh, self development, your, your growth process, having dealt with the temptation of abuse of power. But many people have not been in that position, so they don't know even know themselves. Yes. They don't know how they would react in, in such a situation. So even if you re replaced the uh, shepherds with the herd, take out new people from the herd and put them in as shepherds, you're going to have the exact same situation. That goes back to the old saying that the revolution eats its children. <laughs> oh, finally, we've toppled the system. We have a new system. Everything's going to be great. And the, the people who ascend to power are even more psychopaths than the former ones. <laughs> yes. Again, a classical. So, so we see many problems here goes back to the consciousness status or phenomenon. Yeah, and, and you mentioned the term enlightened despotism, this idea that if we could have enlightened leaders that were somehow immune <laughs> to these uh, temptations. Mm. Um, in, in my second book, An End to Upside Down Living, I, I talked about this danger even within those who are the communities that are very spiritually awake, um, that temptation even can get the best of them. It, 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 even like gurus, there are many cases where they succumb to uh, money, sex, 
or power. Those mm-hmm. are the three things that usually can even catch someone who's very enlightened. Um, so to me, even enlightened despotism is problematic because there are still those temptations. And I want to tell an anecdote here that has influenced my thinking greatly. <clears throat> Excuse me. Um, the, the spiritual teacher, Dr. David Hawkins, who I really enjoyed because he was a, a Western psychiatrist who had these states that some would call enlightened, where he was feeling the oneness. But he described a temptation that he faced on that path where he was in an elevated state where he felt like he was one with everything and a a knowingness came to him. That's how he described it, which said something to the effect of you've transcended all of your personal karma. All power over others is yours and you can take it. You can have power over everyone else. And he said, wait a second, I am everything because there's one consciousness and I'm part of that. So I don't need that power. And he rejected it. Hmm. But he claims, I can't verify whether this is true, but I like the story. He claims that he was then shown the spiritual leaders that rejected the temptation and then others in the past that took the temptation. And these were highly elevated spiritual beings. And they had a horrible karmic fall where they effectively had to start from the beginning or something like that. So the point here is that everyone is susceptible, no no matter how enlightened they appear to be. Hmm. Yeah. Yeah. In the traditional esoterics, it's called the um, guardian or the threshold, the tempter. Uh, and it's there. It's like this strict headmaster that has to check if you've, have you washed your hands? If not, you cannot go in and eat. And mm-hmm. if you haven't washed your hands, bam, you get a smack. Oh, we hate him. We hate Satan, which is the archetype for this. It's like Hermes, Satan, dichotomy here. And yeah, we hate Satan, but it is there for a function. It is like a martial arts teacher who, yeah, he beats you up if you can't pass the test to get uh, <laughs> the new level. Mm-hmm. So it has a function, but lovely story. You know what? We're going to discuss more metaphysical aspects, but I want to rewind a little. We went a little fast through the material stuff. I want you now to give us examples of how we have lost, of, of areas. I mean, it, it seems trivial, but we can't assume everybody knows everything. So if someone is, no, no, I live in a free country, give them examples of the lack of liberties in different areas. I mean, in, in this COVID day and age, it shouldn't be hard, right? And um, also talk a bit about the problem of censorship psychologically as well as in, in other ways. Uh, I mean, this suppression of free speech that I never imagined I would experience in my lifetime. Mm-hmm. Yes. Well, on the topic of of eroding liberties, they seem to be happening everywhere. And it's <clears throat> in some cases as basic as deciding which businesses are essential and which ones aren't. Well, you know, who is the, who is a government to determine that? And when people can leave their homes, <laughs> that's a yeah. pretty big thing to have a curfew that someone's telling you when you can and can't leave your homes. There have been cases where people were effectively told whether they could dance at wedding receptions, whether they could sing at places of worship, or they could sit in person with a a dying loved one. This is micromanaging of people's lives. And sometimes we say that's okay because, well, they have our best interests at heart and there's a real uh, dangerous threat here of a virus. So they're trying to keep us safe, but they are determining the risk that we're taking all over in all aspects of our life right now, increasingly. So that's something- And people believe it's based on science. <laughs> yeah, yes, right. And sometimes, maybe sometimes it is, but other times it seems to be really superstition. 
Um, even the the director, former director of the FDA, uh, said that the six feet was an arbitrary. The six feet separation was an arbitrary metric. Obviously, right. So there are many of these cases where we're being micromanaged. And the point that I'm trying to raise here, and I think you are as well, Al, is to to be aware of those and to question and say, maybe that's not for our, maybe that's because we're moving toward a state of enslavement rather than um, a state of freedom. And the real danger down the road that many people are speculating is, well, what if we have health passports that have all of our, our all of our information stored digitally? And what if we move to a fully digital currency and our finances can be cut on or off as we're being surveilled, hmm. uh, whether or not we're agreeing with government? So that's you know a, a very dystopic perspective, but we seem to be moving in that direction. Yeah, I mean, everybody criticizes the social credit system of China. Yeah, they realize it, it's been sold in media as a bad thing. And and people uh, agree with it. But now the same thing is being implemented here without people realizing it's the same thing. It's not over. That's the thing with eroding liberties. It's never like everything overnight. It's always this slow drip, drip, drip. And sometimes it goes fast ahead and then it resettles on a new normal. Mm. And it's, that's the way it's gone since the 80s. Uh, it's more, been more visible since 2001 since the so-called war against terror, then national security state, which is international, it's global, 19 ice or whatever they call it. It's it's like the whole thing. But yeah, COVID showed us lots of governments reacted in the same way. You say, yeah, it can be determined by science. No, it's influenced by science, <laughs> but never determined. I mean, science, that's a part of the problem too. People have no idea what science is. People behave as if science is religion. Yeah. It's like science says, no, it's inert in science that they, it disagrees about everything. I mean, you could say, yeah, many of the COVID restrictions are based upon, let's say, a, a consensus or a majority science. Well, then it's not science because science never worked as a democracy or, or as a voting system where the majority influences. In the, in the 30s, you could probably find a majority of scientists, at least in some countries, saying that how you look determine how you, how your psyche is, etc. Right. So no, never. It's anti-science to go by majority vote or consensus because at, at best they can pick some science and then let that influence. But the problem here is that we, we don't have any, there's no checks and balances. Mm. It looks to me as if the majority of scientists are silenced. They are, Cancelling doctors and other professionals left and right. They are censoring them, banning them. They are losing job, wage cuts, uh, reputation. There's a lot of control mechanisms. If we focus on science then, because it's so central now, especially health science, I see a lot of uh, control mechanism that doesn't give voice to normal scientists and the few examples we have, we have, the, for example, the Great uh, Declaration something. What's it called? The Great... Arrington Declaration. Yeah. Thousands of, science, uh, of health experts. Then you have this pathetic thing that came out recently where they claim that 250 doctors or something was against Joe Rogan and wanted him cancelled. At closer scrutiny, almost none of them were doctors. Mm -hmm. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and, and it was just a random collection of idiots because they really have to look hard to find people who still believe in the 
uh, oh, uh, cancel free speech and everything will be great. But of course, there's always collaborators and uh, useful idiots. So they got 250 random people to sign that thing. Um, not exactly, a, should we say, a people's movement, yeah. as opposed to the declaration that had thousands of experts, not just random people, we probably are millions of random people. So, yeah, can you talk a little about these things, these curveballs are thrown in there? Well, you mentioned a very important topic of, of what is science. And it's, to me, it's a process of trying to discover the truth and process being the key word that it's evolving. Mm. And to say that we know things for sure is uh, lacks humility. How many times throughout history has the quote unquote science been proven wrong? Mm. And what we're seeing today is uh, many experts coming out saying the science says this, and therefore we have to do this mm. as if that science is immutable and factual. <laughs> the, the, the more uh, humble, intellectually humble way of saying it would be, we have evaluated these studies and they suggest X, Y, and Z, and this information could change. That's not the, the messaging that we typically get. We typically get a much more authoritarian perspective. Mm. So rather than saying in, uh, decisions are being influenced by science, it's science dictates these decisions that we are, are making. And that is where it becomes problematic. It becomes religious, like you said. Um, where, well, this study said X, Y, and Z, where sometimes they don't even reference a study. They just claim because they're an expert that we say this and therefore you, you follow it. Um, that leads to, as you're alluding to, uh, censorship, where if you are a doctor or a scientist or just an everyday thinker who has an idea that is contrary to what the scientific establishment is claiming, then you can be removed. We're seeing this all over social media. Your mm -hmm. account can be suspended. Videos are being banned. Um, where we, our consciousness is essentially being funneled in a certain direction. And Wikipedia is another example. You, you mentioned that there are there's scientific censorship, but even and I cite this in my book, a, a July 2021 interview with Wikipedia's co-founder Larry Sanger. He talks about how now Wikipedia has become propaganda, and that there are certain sources that you can't even cite. Hmm. Yeah, uh, Wikipedia is a famous. Uh, it, it seems to me, that, yeah, the skeptics have retreated. But like Sheldrake pointed out uh, in that excerpt of him I talked about earlier, he says that they uh, they seem to be content with controlling, like they're controlling Wikipedia. They're controlling key outlets and institutions. They have their people placed. So they, they, I mean, I'm not blaming all the. Uh, horrible stuff in the world on the skeptics. I'm just saying within the areas where they're fighting, they have managed to control and they're just a, a sect, basically. Yeah. Uh, of course, there are many more now than they used to be because they had this power grab, this expansion during the 2000s. But basically, they show that if you're an organized ideological sect, you can actually get much more power than you would think your numbers will represent to begin with. But of course, one of the reasons is, I mean, you would never get anarchists, even if they were as organized as this, to reach such a level. Because one of the things the skeptics are going for them is that they are very useful to power. They are shutting down debate. They are putting values ahead, which serves the system and the powers that be. And that's one of the reasons they have this free range of havoc. There also seems to be rhetoric 
suggesting that those who ask questions are dangerous. Yeah. And this comes from the skeptical community. That to me is is completely counter to scientific thinking. Yeah. Of course, questioning is needed. So it's I'm baffled often that fewer people question that kind of talk. And actually some people support it and say, yes, this is dangerous questioning or dangerous misinformation is a term that's often yeah. used. Who's to, it's sort of like the term paranormal. Who's to determine what's normal versus mm. paranormal? It's a very arbitrary distinction. Yeah. That's the same reason why extraordinary claims demand extraordinary evidence. It's rubbish. It's unscientific. All claims demand evidence. That's it. Yes. And then we just have to put where, where where's the limit of evidence? Let's agree about that. And that's where the limit should be on all areas. Otherwise, our bias is, is running the show. But this is an old point Alex has rehashed many times. That's okay. But um, uh, you were saying, uh, what was the last thing you said now before I went on, on that tangent? You said... We were um, talking about Wikipedia. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. So liberties that eroding, uh, yeah, censorship. Yeah. People think it's dangerous. <laughs> <laughs> That's dangerous psychology, that people think questioning is dangerous. But uh, Jimmy Dore, he, he usually says, yeah, people are behaving like children of alcoholics. If you reveal how the game is rigged, look, you can't control your authorities. Then they attack you. Oh, don't tell me that my father is beating me. You're the bringer of bad news, so I'm attacking you. <laughs> it's that slave mentality that's so ingrained in us across, it seems, borders and, and culture, some more than others. And, and this goes, again, back to the consciousness problem that there's a disease. I'm old enough to remember a time before this extreme digital control age we're living in now. And people just took the freedom for granted. And, and we couldn't get away with it. If you told just a fragment of what's going on now to a person 10 or 20 years ago, they wouldn't believe you. Yeah. They would call it conspiracy theory or hallucination. But now it's the new normal. So I think we need efforts like what you, you're doing, trying to also put into a perspective what's going on here. Because there's a consciousness pollution going on, as far as I can see. Yeah, that's what it feels like to me. It feels like a steering and uh, redirecting of consciousness, typically towards a direction of fear and away from what some would call unconditional love. That's what seems to be the state that emerges in near-death experiences, psychedelics, et cetera, that the nature of consciousness is about unconditional love, whereas we're being directed toward fear and division and sometimes hatred. So uh, that, in addition to having you know, many people who are getting sick, that's, that's one issue in society, but sometimes that can cause us to lose track of the bigger picture, that there is this erosion of liberty and a misdirecting of consciousness that's taking us away from our true nature. So why is liberty important? Well, to me, as I see it from a metaphysical perspective, part of why we exist is to evolve. And we see this through a combination of evidence of reincarnation. So children who have past life memories, this has been studied over 2,500 cases at the University of Virginia. If we combine that with some of the near-death experience research, and the life review phenomenon where people relive their lives and they relive how they treated people through the eyes of the people that they impacted. And then they come back in their bodies and they're often forever changed. Um, this evidence, along with other evidence, suggests that there's almost an engine of evolution, that we enter a body, we're here to have learning experiences, 
and then there might be another experience in a different body. Um, if, if that is remotely true, then we need to be in a society where we have an opportunity to evolve. And that means that we have an opportunity to make mistakes and also to thrive. And that happens in a society where there is individual liberty. Yeah. Yeah. Always, if you want to know what's right and wrong on the collective, just use individual as example. Everybody who has children should know that if you if you don't give the child a certain amount of freedom, you're going to ruin its psychological development. A child needs the experience of touching fire to know that that's dangerous or, or, or harmful. A child needs to be able to climb a tree, obviously a small tree, <laughs> and fall down and realize, oh, that's what's happening. That's what we're doing in our formation years, right? So, but if you turn it upside down, as <laughs> you point out that we do, mm -hmm. when it comes to the collective, if the collective doesn't have the freedom to evolve, to experience, the less experience you have, the less growth you will have and the more stagnant you will become in your consciousness. So take the child again. If you overprotect the child and you, oh, no, don't do that, don't touch that, oh, then you instill a fear-based reaction. The, the studies show that children who have parents who encourage them and uh, pat them on the back and all that stuff, they take risks and statistically they become more successful because they, they for them, what's around the corner is an opportunity. Whereas those who either are over, uh, I don't know the English word, but overprotected, overherded, over, um, shepherd, what, whatever you want to call it, uh, and surveilled maybe even. Yeah. And notwithstanding being punished every time you try something new or that you're being punished, those children are afraid of what's behind the corner. So they won't take a peek. The first one, yeah, I risk it because what's the worst that can happen? And the winning is better than the losing. The other one is reversed. Oh, the worst that can happen. I can think of a million things. I'm just going to be smacked in the face. So I'll not peek around the corner. I'll keep myself locked into this little bubble where I feel safe and comforted. Even if my father is an alcoholic and beating me up, this is what I know. This is a classical psychological basic concept, whether it's like, uh, you know, a battering wife or whatever we're talking about. Now, transfer it to the collective. And it looks to me as if people are now uh, hypnotized, as you say, or daddy corporation or mommy state, whatever, and not just overprotect me uh, against the dangerous liberty, the open space, I need this closed bubble, but also punish me. Please pun, it's like a collective masochism. Yeah. Uh, so that's what I mean when it's, I say we're like children of alcoholic. It looks to me as if they've taken those pathologies in, let's say, family dynamics or whatever you want to call it, on a personal interrelationship psychology and transferred it to the collective. And that's supposed to be a good thing. Views? <laughs> yeah. Well... To me, part of our spiritual development process is to have greater and greater individual responsibility and accountability uh, rather than right. relying on the, the mommy, daddy government structure that we're told we have. But the, the, the wolf in sheep's clothing here is that the mommy, daddy structure often turns into the wolf that is mm. uh, acting like it's protective, but it actually is more predatory. And if we think about, like, let's say we, we wanted to have full protection. 
and eliminate all risk in society. The way to do that would to have to be to have a fully totalitarian structure, yeah. which is sort of what we see with these uh, governments that want zero COVID. Well, in order to have zero COVID, then basically your lives are controlled. And to me, that is just is so counter to spiritual thinking. Yeah, there's a glimmer of hope now because uh, the buffoon Boris Johnson over in UK, he's been involved in internal party politic battle. They want to oust him, a faction. So he did a move now and there was this scandal. Oh, the look, the elites are partying. Of course, that's happening everywhere. People are just not, <laughs> don't show it to us. That's the problem. It's just don't show it to us. We don't want to have it imprinted on our consciousness that that's what's going on. Keep up the brave new world charade facade. Okay. But what he did when he got in trouble, he, he has some common traits with Trump. Now, Trump, obviously, oh, oh, we hate Trump because he's such a brute. Don't show us the ugliness of the system. That's the difference between Clinton and Trump. Everybody can see narcissistic traits in Trump. But it's much better hidden in, in Hillary. Although, of course, if you're really a psychopath, you can't really control it. So yeah. that's why she will laugh when she hears that uh, what happened when, when uh, Gaddafi got a bayonet up his hiney. And that's why she would say drone strike Julian Assange. But in general, she hides it better. Now, the trait Boris Johnson has with Trump is another thing. It's more the doing rogue, maverick moves that the political establishment is unheard of among them. It's a no-no. Yeah. It's just that the political establishment knows what you can do and not do uh, in, in, in terms of in front of the public. Those rules, Trump just steamrolled over those rules, which is one of the reasons he's won. Now, Boris Johnson has the same kind of instincts. I'm not <laughs> trying to, I'm not saying he's a good politician or anything. I'm not sympathetic to his views. But the thing is, he also thinks outside the box. So what he did now to save himself, he did the same thing with, he got to power by listening because he knew the people wanted out of the Brexit thing. So he supported that. He also knew that people were fed up with the lockdowns. So he made a move now where he says, no more lockdowns, no more COVID passport, no more masks. Everything is now free. And he thinks he can save himself politically by that move. Now, whether that's true or not, it's, it's immaterial. The point is that has now created a, a, a wave, like a, a new... People watch that. Oh, UK can get away with that. Well, that's the way it's going now. Mm -hmm. We expect the same here. So just one little movie. I think you mentioned the butterfly effect, didn't you? In your yes. talk with. It's kind of, this is a huge, this isn't just a butterfly. But he did that move for nefarious reasons. And inadvertently, we can earn from that. It can put this, if it's gone two steps ahead, I look at it now as one step back. Thanks to that. Yeah. Well, it's on the surface, certainly encouraging to have more liberty. But to me, this notion that a third party is determining, okay, now you can be free. Uh, that That is so counter to how I look at life. Mm. <laughs> that liberty isn't something that is given out by political figures. It is something that is innate. So that conditioning is concerning to me that, well, when the government is going to tell you, you can be free and not have a passport to prove that you're healthy. Uh, that's a concerning trend to normalize that. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, I'm grown up with the norm that your health um, status is private. Right. 
Do, do you have like a centralized uh, health system? Uh, like here in Norway, we have like a database where all, so I can log into a site and then I can check how many vaccines have I got? When did I get them? Other things in my, everything with my health is on a, a login based website. I find that a little concerning. It shouldn't be more concerning than all the money being <laughs> digital, right? It's yeah. kind of the same thing. But has it gone that far in America too? Because I know you are a little better when it comes to that kind of privacy systems, but maybe not anymore. I don't know. Yeah, well, if it exists, I haven't personally been exposed to it. Um, okay. I know typically individual doctors might have history, but I'm not a I'm not personally aware of a database centralized. Um, yeah, centralized. Although maybe it does exist, and I just haven't come across it. That that is a concerning trend yeah. that I'm hearing from you because uh, that is private information, and and how could that be used to divide people based on health status, for example? That's of concern. Yeah. Yeah, and but it comes with a a, a kind uncle face, un, right. uncle state. So, and even uh, many people have access. But the, it's a uh, but if I'm a health worker and I look you up, it will be registered. And there's some laws that uh, you know a random nurse can't just look me up. She needs some kind of approval. So they have like checks and balances. But of course, all this is. You know, you just need forward 10 years and all that may have changed, right? So that's like the drip, drip thing. It first comes in, a, like the new thing now, they say it was a conspiracy that you're going to get this chip, right? Oh, anti-vaxxer and chip. Well, <laughs> Sweden yeah. just launched. Did you see it? The yes. first yeah, <laughs> COVID chip. It was conspiracy theory. Yeah. It, it seems that what everyone was saying two years ago, vaccine passports, uh, mandatory injections, things like that. Lab leak. Lab leak. These were all crazy conspiracy theories that you were to be taken off the internet for, and they, they seem to be coming true. Another one is the notion that you could uh, die while being testing, while testing positive for COVID incidentally, but not dying because of COVID mm. and that the numbers are not fully accurate. That was a conspiracy theory. And now the health officials are admitting yeah. that the numbers might be wrong. I remember some of the knee-jerk, those who are against all that shit, anti-vaxxers, all that stuff, I remember they saying that very early, uh, just months into COVID, they said, no, no, it's who dies with COVID, not of... I caught myself thinking, ah, okay, you're going a little too far there, buddy. Your instinct is healthy. <laughs> I sympathize with you. <laughs> but, but, and bam, no, such a basic thing. And, and yeah. Okay. Uh, let's move a little on here. So we, we've seen a few example of, of how it goes. And we've talked a little about the importance of having freedom as a default. You, you said it yourself. It's not something granted to us by a politician. We're born free, at least according to the human rights and all sorts of civil and human rights that has been conjured up by civil society and all that's eroding and and that that's not what puzzles me what puzzles me is that so few are waking up although again we don't know that that's my point right we don't know how many if they censor everything they can make it seem like it's an look look at joe rogan he has more viewers than all the most popular mainstream shows put together yeah. you can put rachel maddow and uh, tucker and all those guys together and they still can't outnumber joe rogan and that's podcasts are now one of the last refuges of unregulated uh, spaces in our world today and that's why they're coming for podcasts now yeah and 
I mentioned this because we don't have any more. How can we know if if stuff is rigged, which is is, uh, and 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 you prove it in your book with sources. But if it is rigged, then let's say they they control the opinion polls, they control the voting stuff. So we don't know they're the real numbers. I heard that there's always like a twenty percent buffer they have in terms of. I know this sounds like wild conspiracy theory, but look up, for example, Professor. Robert Fitrakis, I've had him on my show. He's done excellent academic uh, work, investigations of of voting rigging and all that stuff. And so if you have it in, like, say, doctors who are for or against the general government narrative, we don't know how many. Uh, we look at the mainstream media. It's just a complete bubble of unreality. But... People won't know if we have no ways to communicate and band together and show. So what do you think is the situation today? This is speculative. Do you think more people than ever have woken up? It depends on the day that you ask me this question. Some days, <laughs> some days I'm more optimistic and other days I'm more pessimistic. Because like you say, Al, it's very difficult to tell uh, the extent of the awakening because the media gives us such a biased perspective and we have a little bit of data from independent media but we're t- we're it's it's spotty the data that we have in my personal experience i know many people who are extremely intelligent from a conventional perspective who uh, completely buy the mainstream narrative and really don't question it much at all uh, so when i when i see that kind of thinking that makes me pessimistic and makes me wonder well what would it take for someone to wake up and really question and for as i see it for some people they they might resist to the very end because they it, it requires such a worldview shift if you haven't thought this way before and, the, and on the other side of it is i do see some people waking up and i see the numbers like joe rogan numbers that you're talking about where people are being exposed to this information and if you look on youtube some of the the view counts for for videos that talk about alternative ideas that to me is encouraging and also my own personal development if we had spoken before 2016 i knew nothing about the spiritual metaphysics i was a materialist myself i didn't know about the, the corruption uh beyond some of the things i saw professionally i did see some of that but it was again in a siloed area but i didn't know about this uh, more centralized corruption um and, and so if, if that's happening in my own life i'm optimistic that uh, that others might be making a similar shift too yeah nobody can avoid seeing it but there's two problems here number one like we touched upon, they don't know that it can be transferred to all other areas. Yeah. So they trust all other areas, but something is wrong in my area, whatever it is. I'm 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 a pilot and I'm so angry about big uh, aeroplanes. <laughs> <laughs> but the other problem is, why is it like that? What does it take to... Because I, I'm painfully aware of the same. You know... Uh, the the slogan of skeptical is science at the tipping point. Yes. Our slogan is paradigm expansion. When I started out, the only red thread I wanted for my shows is to present something in any area whatsoever, which at least to many, if not a majority, will be paradigm challenging. I think it's a healthy thing. I'm grown up. My little time in academia too was cherished. Paradigm shift. Ooh, that's the norm of evolution and growth and even science. But in reality, I think we all have underestimated how really hard it is for people to 
I mean, Popper, of course, talked about this long ago, but it takes a generation, he says. We don't have a generation anymore. And I'm now worried for the new generations. I, I don't know for sure. I hear a lot, but it's a lot of like boomer bias or whatever. <laughs> you know, that generation yeah. are hating upon each other and other divide and conquer, of course. Okay, boomer. So I don't know if it's like, but I'm worried that new generations grow up with this. And I see two possibilities there. One is that this becomes a default. So they expect it and they're comfortable with it and they feel safe. Or it can be a cause for a rebellion. I, I suspect it can be, we can get very rebellious generations now if they go so far that they cross what, what I call natural human limit, if there is such a thing. But I do believe there are some common spiritual traits in humans. Like everybody across cultures, even in cultures where they grow up thinking that killing is good and sacrificing people in the volcano is good, even there they know like you can't just kill your random neighbor and that's a good thing. There are certain instincts, certain defaults in human beings, I believe. And I, I do think if it goes too far, that you will see a reaction. But as a psychologist, what's your thoughts about why is it so hard for people? Why are people so damn married to the notion? And another thing, it looks to me as if the more stupid they are, <laughs> the more they are convinced about <laughs> something, the more tribal and fanatical they are. So and, any thoughts? Well, I can say from my own experience and having examined my own personal psychology, that a paradigm shift based on um, ex the examination of evidence is very disorienting and uncomfortable. Mm -hmm. uh, for me to go through this shift, I, I was in such a different place before I uncovered the, the science that's been out there for so long. Um, I had to rethink all of my assumptions about my own life. And that didn't happen overnight and it was not easy. So I could envision how someone might want to resist that going through that. And I mentioned this on Skeptico. I'll mention it again here. I have a very intelligent friend who, who I mentioned the evidence to that I was researching. Mm -hmm. And he said, Mark, you might be right about this, but my life's pretty good. I don't want to rock the boat. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I don't want to go there. Mm -hmm. So th I think that mentality probably does exist elsewhere where people have their cookie cutter life or the way they envisioned reality. And to disturb that reality is, is too upsetting and too uncomfortable for them to want to do it. Right. Very interesting. Because that means, and of course, I kind of knew it already, but number one lesson from that little anecdote is that material conditions are crucial when it comes to two things. One, hypnotize people into an unnatural state. That's not good for us. But also when it comes to wakening them up. I think that's why revolutions really happen when people feel it in their body. If people are dumbed down and distracted, that's the thing. The oligarchs of the past were smarter. They knew we have to share some crumbles with the people, material crumbs, some of the wealth, uh, give them a certain amount of freedom and put a lot of distractions. And now we have a good game yeah. where we are the owner of the status quo. That was the number one argument against many conspiracy theories because the leaders don't want to rock the boat. They have a great system there. The elites are cashing in on the status quo. But then everything seems to be changing now. And for me, 
it indicates that there's an X factor we're not aware of, because why else would they do this enormous push? One X factor was the internet. The internet came and turned everything upside down. I mean, it turned it the right way. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yes. Let's stick to the real terminology here. So I saw a huge awakening happening between, I would say, 2008 to 2015. And I think the elites were terrified. Uh, and uh, the Trump election sealed it. Brexit and the Trump election were two symbols of people power, which shouldn't supposed to happen in this rigged system. And we're not saying Trump is like this great populist, but he was hated. They didn't want him. That's the point. Yeah. For whatever reason, we can go into another time. And so that happened and the Brexit thing. And so I, I think that's part of the equation that it, now we're seeing like a backlash and they ordered all the social media to uh, rein in because that's where we get the news from. You can still go out on on uh, speaker's corner and, you know, ramble on, but nobody's going to listen to you. Today, the town square is effectively the internet and then social media. More people get the information from social media than they get. I mean, nobody watches the news anymore. So here's the point, uh, reiterating it. Material conditions contribute because your friend, he can say that if something devastates his bubble. So he's one of those people who has to wait until it gets so bad that even he feels it on his body because there will be different degrees. We're on a specter, right? Yeah. Uh, so the boat can go down, but some of us is in the mast. So we won't get wet until the whole ship is underwater, right? Well, that's when we wake up. Yes. Well, my philosophy has been. If I don't align with reality, then at some point, like you say, reality is going to come and smack me in the face. So I better learn what it is, whether I like it or not. That's been my personal philosophy. Nice. And often reality, sometimes reality is comforting and other times I learn things that are very disturbing. Um, I, I think there's another psychological force here, which is um, denial. And yeah. it's related to what I was saying, but it's also uh, related to not wanting to be wrong especially with regard to political views, like you were saying earlier, mm. to believe some of these things, it might be for some people to contradict their, their long-held political views. And to reverse a political view would, would be to admit that certain things that that person believed were incorrect. And it's almost like when you play poker and you've, you've put a lot in the pot, your pot committed yeah. to a certain position. Yeah. There's an element of that psychologically. Just brilliant. Yeah, that's that's a very uh, visible. But have you, do you have any thoughts about how we can cause more people to wake? I mean, it's a cliche, wake up, but become more aware of their own self-interest, best interest, if uh, as long as the material condition doesn't force them to reevaluate their position. How else can we reach them? Or, or I'm not I'm not sure it's my job anyway, but. Uh, and obviously, I'm having a podcast and you're having a podcast. But okay, I'll, I'll give you one example from my own life. I've changed more minds meeting people with the respect and patience and listening to them. And I've been in sales, so I know how this works. Not trying to seem as if I want to change their mind. You see what I mean? It, it's yeah. no, you, you, you will never win a battle when you come into it two wings. All you will, at best you will do is that, let's say you're discussing with an opponent and you, I hate the term, win the debate. It just shows you it has nothing to do with truth, right? Yeah. <laughs> Everybody wins if truth is in. But at best you can get applaud from your own sect for that 
it's like a gladiator fight. It's like a bread and circus. Two political opponents come together, they discuss, and they go back to, or like a skeptic or a Christian, for example, and then they go back to their congregation and get either criticism or pats on the back. That's this, the discourse that's encouraged. But very rarely truth is the agenda, but you can kind of sense it with some people. Like the skeptical show we mentioned, he, he's famous for debating people. But I think one of the reasons materialists shy away, atheists, skeptics, is because they sense that he's not coming in as a tribal fight. He's coming in expecting them to want to know the truth and base it on the data. And that's one of the reasons they can't handle Alex in discussions, because they're going to be revealed for not being interested in truth at all. <laughs> so... I do believe that showing people examples of truth being the value rather than your tribe can be a way to show people a new, a third way. Any any thoughts about influencing hearts and minds? Yeah, I think about it in, in two ways. One is from a traditional physical standpoint, and secondly, from a metaphysical standpoint. From a physical standpoint, I agree with you that there almost has to be a, a gentleness in the way that the information is presented. And that's what I... I try to do in my work. I'm not trying to um, make someone look at the evidence who doesn't want to, but for those who are interested, I want to present the information in a way that is logical and backed by data and sources. That that adds credibility to it. But really, the, the person who's taking in the information has to want it his or, on his or her own. <laughs> that can't be forced. Uh, but it is very important. And that's why I think like what you're doing with your podcast is very important. And what I'm trying to do is to make the information accessible through different forms of media. And that's so really education is one way to think about it. But from a metaphysical standpoint, if we are all interconnected as, as part of a unified field of consciousness, which is the way I look at things, to use the analogy from Dr. Bernardo Castrup, we are whirlpools within an infinite stream of consciousness. We are uh, apparently separate, but we're actually interconnected and we have this sense of individuality. If that is true, um, then when an individual elevates his or her consciousness, that in theory would impact the entire stream at some level. It's like when the water level lifts in the sea, all boats are lifted. And what I'm getting at here is from a metaphysical lens, as we elevate our consciousness individually, and that means become more awake and aware as to what's happening and educate ourselves, I think there might be something within the field that changes that I can't explain. Right. Um, and, and that might have an impact in ways that we can't see with our senses. Oh, I didn't see that point coming. Great point, man. And very comforting, heartening point. Because, yeah, it's the critical mass thing, isn't it? Yeah. What do they, this experiment with the monkeys who started to uh, this I, the, the neighbor island, the other monkeys is that is that a real case or do, yeah, I do. or is it just a? I've heard people talk about it, the hundredth monkey that basically yeah. when a certain number of monkeys learn to do something, then the entire population then becomes right. aware of it. Yeah. I it's not something I've cited in my books. I haven't looked too deeply at the science. I, I know people use it as an analogy. Yeah. There's a typical factoid that I'm pretty sure Anthony Peake <laughs> would know the answer to. <laughs> yeah. But but it's interesting because paradigm shift, it, it hurts people. They can't handle it. Um, it's just like changing material conditions. It's just as hard, which kind of shows you, again, that consciousness is key. If it hurts, 
some people even prefer material changes to <laughs> consciousness change. That just shows you how powerful it is. Yeah. But I have an idea. Why don't we study, uh, maybe you know about this from your field. If you look at people who experiment with uh, hallucinogens like LSD or or ayahuasca, etc., there are clinical ways and also traditional ways, like, like a shaman, etc., where you can guide people through that process, where it doesn't become painful, but where it becomes like a, a, an impetus to growth. Yeah, the, because what is that other than an intense paradigm shift or expansion during a very short amount of time? And there should then be studies or, or knowledge among coaches, therapists, psychologists, whatever. How can we do this in a smooth, safe, optimal way without people freaking out? And <laughs> so I think lessons from that can be transferred to the collective in general when we talk about paradigm shift. That's a great point. And as you were speaking, I'm thinking about some of the studies that have been done using psychedelics for uh, PTSD therapy, for example. Yeah. And my understanding so far is that the strongest results uh, come not just from the psychedelic experience itself, but from the therapy that follows with the integration of the experience. And that's what you're alluding to as well, that there can be a, a shock of a paradigm shift of, wow, reality isn't what I thought it was going to be. And there needs to be a careful, gentle integration in order to internalize it without going crazy. Exactly. Because that's the, the backside of the medal is that when many people realize the illusion crumbles, many go to the exact opposite side and like all bets are off now. There's no rules and norms here. So, oh, flat earth. Yes, yes. Oh, COVID doesn't exist. Yeah, yeah, whatever, right? Yeah. And it's relative recent that you woke up. But I think your saving grace is that you haven't thrown the baby out with the bathwater. It seems to me as you've retained healthy scientific principles that you're still implementing in your life and in your understanding as a kind of a base regulation. You are applying healthy scientific principles to navigate the other side of the exploded bubble. Yeah. Well, I certainly try to, and maybe this is my business training of if I'm in front of a board of directors, I have to be, there has to be evidence for what I'm saying. So it's a similar standard where if I'm going to make a claim, I should know the extent of the evidence that's backing it up. And I am willing to explore things that are less scientific, but I always try to acknowledge that it's less provable to the extent that we can ever prove anything, but there's less certainty that goes along with it. And I, and, uh, that's that's my approach with my books, my podcast, when I speak, is to try to measure out the degree of certainty within a certain belief that I hold. Right. Yeah. So therapy. So I, I think that if people experience a paradigm shift, a way we can, that there should be like a <laughs> systems, ways to like welcome people into the <laughs> to, to the free world, you know. Uh, okay, you need a re retraining in a way. Um, I'm just trying to transfer these principles to uh, reality because they have nowhere to go. What, what should I believe now? Where should I go now for my sources? Now I know media is lying to me. I know politicians are lying to me. And they're not trained in critical thinking, in source criticism, in logic and understanding. So it's so easy to be hijacked. And that's what they use against. That's why I think how they manage to keep the herd in prison 
is that they point to these just outrageous, cartoonish examples. That's how they got away with it. They managed to portray Alex Jones as even more crazy than he actually is. Because the format is part of his problem. If someone gave him a sedation pill <laughs> and sat down with him for 12 hours... Alex, you have 12 hours to explain to me why frogs are gay. And then at the end of the day, you would say, okay, behind all the hyperbole and the panicking and the fast talking, there would be a core of truth that he would see. But that never happens. So, oh, Alex Jones is a maniac. Let's censor him. Nobody else, of course, just him. Although many people were censored before, even that. And so floodgates are open, right? Yeah. And that's how I think about it here too, that they look at the most outrageous example and they think, oh shit, that's alternative to where I am now. Then I realize why they don't want to rock the boat, right? And of course, we are gray, we are faceless, all us normal people, real normal. That's why I hate the word alternative. I never use it because I'm convinced the alternative today is this little hardcore insane circle of uh, those who dictate the agenda in whatever area you want to choose are really the minority, but they need to control us in order to retain the power. So I, I think we are the mainstream and they are the alternative. Do you see what I mean? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, certainly in terms of principle, this notion that we uh, should challenge uh, paradigms and be creative and have independent critical thinking and that our freedom doesn't come from a third party. These seem like pretty basic mainstream principles that have somehow uh, been manipulated into being called alternative. Absolutely. I, I prefer the term independent. Yes. Right. Which is yeah, being an individual and having independent thinking. Yeah. Yeah. And independent media independent uh, in politics, etc. Yeah. And in medicine, I, I don't even like the term alternative medicine. Complementary medicine, I, I can buy because it is in addition to the yes. uh, allopathy that are being pushed. But Mark, let's, uh, let's, let's take, take a break, break now. now. We're almost, almost at the top, top of the hour. And when we come back, back we'll just, just pick right up where we left it. Okay. 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 Great. Great. All of our files are free and will remain free. If you like the show, you can show support by donating $1 to help with expenses. Just use the PayPal link on our website, YouTube channel, or Facebook page. Thanks. Thanks. 